Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Um, hello. Ah, there I am. Um, okay. So, um, first of all, I'd like to thank Penwell Voices. Uh, as all of you know, I'm sure, uh, this event is part of the uh, Penwell Voices Festival 2018. Uh, a festival that this year celebrates 14 years um, and has always been an extraordinary festival. And I think uh, this year in particular with uh, Chip Rowley at the helm, who has done a fantastic job, I'd like to thank him personally for uh, the work he has done and all of uh, his staff has done, uh, making sure that this event happens smoothly and that the festival goes as it should. Um, I think that... Um, uh, first of all, welcome. Uh, thank you for coming to the trick of translation, or uh, the translation of trick, as it as it may be. I think any uh, author event that has wordplay in its title is cause for concern. So, um, thank you for not judging and coming uh, nonetheless. Um, and welcome to uh, Jumpa Lahiri and to Domenico Startnone, and uh, especially I think to Lilia. Pino Buin, who is translating for Domenico this evening. And just to give you uh, further cause for concern, we're going to begin tonight's uh, event with a short reading in Italian. Um, for those of you in the audience who, who do not speak Italian, be not afraid, do not leave, everything will be elucidated. Um, and I think that all you need to know to uh, enjoy this reading is that in Trick, Domenico Startnone's most recent novel and Jumpa Lahiri's most recent translation, an elderly man by the name of uh, Daniele Mallarico, uh, a book illustrator whose recent illustrations have been rebuffed by his editor, uh, his publisher, um, has been asked by his grown daughter to come to Naples for a few days the city of his birth, to babysit his four-year-old grandson. Uh, Daniele is, an, as I said, an elderly man. He's recently been ill. Uh, in this passage that Domenico will read from, uh, they're taking a walk in Naples. Camminammo per un bel po', andammo verso Sant'Anna alle Paludi e poi verso Porta Nolana. Il bambino tentò prima di fermarsi a ogni negozietto di cianfrusaglie cinesi, a ogni motocicletta o motorino in sosta che voleva esaminare per provarmi le sue competenze. Ma poiché lo tirai via senza dargli retta, finì per tenermi dietro per lo più in silenzio. Fui io qualche volta a rivolgergli la parola, ma solo per ricordare a me stesso che c'era, che lo tenevo per mano. Per il resto continuai a rigirarmi nella testa le parole dell'editore e poi il buono che potevo trovarci risultò sempre più esile, 
l'irritazione iniziale si mutò in rabbia. A scuola quella parola non piaceva. Maestri e professori ci correggevano. No rabbia, ci rimproveravano, si dice ira. La rabbia ce l'hanno i cani. Ma la lingua napoletana che si parlava nel basto, al pendino, al mercato, i quartieri in cui ero cresciuto io e prima erano cresciuti mio padre, i nonni e i bisnonni, forse tutti i miei antenati, non conosceva la parola ira, l'ira di Achille e di, altri e di altri arrivi dentro i libri, ma solo Araggia. La gente di questa città, pensai, di questi quartieri e piazze, strade, vichi e banchine, del porto piene di fatica e cariche e, cariche e scariche illegali, s'arraggiava, non s'adirava, s'arraggiava a casa, per strada, soprattutto quando vagava in cerca di soldi senza trovarne. E spesso bastava poco per azzannarsi con altri arraggiati. La raggia, sì. Araggia, altro che l'ira, ti sei adirato, vi siete adirati, si sono adirati, ma che maestri e professori ci davano un vocabolario che era inservibile per quelle strade. Lì c'era una città di cani e l'ira non aveva niente a che fare col sangue agli occhi che mi veniva per vie come appunto quella che stavamo imboccando adesso e che portava soccorso Garibaldi. Quando uscivo di scuola e non avevo voglia di tornare a casa perché ero furibondo contro compagni aguzzini, contro professori sadici, era la rabbia che mi rompeva il petto, gli occhi, la testa, e per calmarmi facevo il giro lungo, andavo fino a Porta Nolana, a volte imboccavo via San Cosmo, altre volte col sangue che non si acquietava, andavo per il Lavinaio, andavo al Carmine, camminavo selvatico per spazi scempiati, raggiungevo il porto. E guai se per strada qualcuno distrattamente mi urtava, bestemmiavo santi e madonne, ero non adirato, ma arraggiato. E ridevo sfottente, poi sputavo, tiravo mazzate sperando di riceverne. Oggi nessuno che mi conosca lo direbbe, ma ero proprio così. Quanto sarebbe bello, mi dissi, tornare a Milano e dopo più di mezzo secolo, Risorgere come sono stato da adolescente, andare dritto filato in corso Genova, imboccare l'edificio dove ha sede la casa editrice, salire al terzo piano e senza preamboli sputare in faccia al piccolo scostumato signorino che ha criticato il mio lavoro, non solo quelle tavole no, ma tutto il lavoro di una vita senza rispetto, peccato che la stagione della raggia era morta l'avevo soffocata in tempi andati tu lo sai cos'è Araj? chiese a Mario non si parla così nonno We walked quite a ways. We went toward Sant'Anna alle Paludi and then toward Porta Nolana. The child first tried to stop at every store of Chinese knickknacks, at every parked motorcycle or scooter that he wanted to examine, 
to show me how powerful they were. But since I pulled him away without paying attention, he ended up walking ahead of me in silence. It was, it was the one, once or twice, I was the one, once or twice, who spoke to him, but only to remind myself that he was there, that I was holding his hand. The rest of the time I kept turning over the publisher's words in my head, and since whatever positive spin I could give felt increasingly flimsy, the initial irritation turned to rage. That word was frowned upon in school. Teachers and professors would correct us. Not rage, they would scold. We say ire, rabid dog's rage. But the Neapolitan that was spoken in Vasto, at the Pendino, at the market, the neighborhoods where I was raised and before that my father and grandparents and great-grandparents, maybe all my ancestors put together, didn't know the word ire, the wrath of Achilles and others who lived in books. They only knew arraja, rage. The people in this city, I thought, in these neighborhoods and squares and streets and alleyways and stalls by the port filled with toil and illegal loading and unloading, got enraged. They didn't grow irate. They raged at home, on the street, above all when they wandered in search of money and didn't find it. And often it didn't take much to maul others in a rage. La Raja, yes, rage, to hell with ire. Did you grow irate? Did you and he, did they, give me a break? Teachers and professors gave us a vocabulary that was useless on those streets. It was a city full of dogs, and ire had nothing to do with my bloodshot eyes. As I roamed the streets, like the one we were turning on to now that led to Garibaldi Way. When I would get out of school and didn't want to go home because I was furious with classmates who tormented me, with sadistic teachers, it was rage that split my chest, my eyes, my head, and to calm myself down, I'd take the long way. I'd go down to Porta Nolana, sometimes I went up via San Cosmo. Other times when my blood wouldn't stop boiling, I'd go down to La Vignayo, I'd go to the Carmine. I'd walk wild through blighted neighborhoods until I reached the port. And if someone bumped into me on the street, there was trouble. I swore saints and madonnas up and down, not irate, but in a rage. And I'd laugh mockingly, then spit. I'd throw punches, hoping to receive them in return. But one, no one who knows me today would think it, but that's exactly how it was. How lovely it would be, I said to myself, to return to Milan and after half a century re-emerge as I'd been as an adolescent, march straight without stopping onto Corso Genova, enter the building where the publishing house has its offices, go up to the third floor and without preamble spit in the face of that ill-mannered upstart who criticized my work without respect, not just those illustrations, no, but the work of a lifetime, a pity that the season of rage had died. I'd smothered it long ago. Do you know what Raja means? I asked Mario. You shouldn't talk like that, Grandpa. <laughs> Thank you both. Um, Jhumpa Lahiri, th this is not only a, a very illustrative passage in terms of what it indicates about Malarico's relationship with his grandson and his relationship with Naples. Uh, his relationship with his own past, who he was in the past. But you had also indicated it to me as a passage that was very tricky to translate in trick. Um, I, I'd like to know more about what made it tricky. 
Well, it's all about language. And so, it, I mean, it's explicitly about language and usage of words, which is what all of translation is. But when arrows are being pointed at, um, at language itself, I think it, uh, it ups the, the, the ante, as it were, and uh, one has to think even more carefully about the words to substitute um, in this case. Um, you know, as you say, I mean, the, the whole book, in, I mean, this is one of those kind of um, pillars of the book in, sense, in the sense that it is, um, it's, it's pulling together uh, language and emotion, uh, language as being emotion, uh, language as place, um, the difference between uh, the language used by one generation as opposed to another, um, the breaking away of a certain generation which is uh, taught to use for whatever reason uh, other terminology to explain life and human behavior and human psychology. Um, so when I was, you know, when I first looked at this passage, um, uh, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, the whole, the whole passage is, is, is filled with this anger, right? So y one has to infuse the, the language with, with the emotion I in a general sense, um, just to create the kind of the, the climate of the, you know, to, con to adjust the climate of the, of the room in, in, in a certain way to, uh, so that the cadence of the sentence is something has to transmit this anger. And then there were the words for um, the anger, right? So we have ang you know, anger, which I don't use. I use rage as opposed to ire. Um, but at first, I think I, I had um, anger for rabia, which is, was the first you know, word that came to my mind as I was quickly translating the first way through. And then, uh, of course, this, this passage also draws the distinction between a sort of literary language, the language of books, the language um, you know, of, of writers, uh, of artists, uh, as opposed to the language that um, people use, um, in this case, um, the people uh, of, of Naples and, and this character's family. So, uh, so I had to, the first thing I had to, uh, to, to understand was really that what were going to be the substitutes for the, 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 the word for rabbia uh, as opposed to ira, ire, uh, which that was more clear to me that it would be ire. Um, but I think um, the wrath of Achilles was, if I'm not mistaken, my addition, because that was the way I had first come to Achilles when I was a student, and it, that felt like the more literary terminology. Um, and, uh, and then I noticed as Domenico was reading this word signorino, which can be kind of troublesome in, in English. I just came across it in another story that I'm working on, um, that I'm editing actually, uh, but it's it's a pejorative term um, for a, you know a not a little gentleman, but something more than that. And so I struggled, and eventually um, I used this word uh, upstart to describe the editor. But it was that these were these were things that I was considering 
up until the very last pass of the translation. And, and given um, this passage is many-layered, but Trick from start to finish is a, a many-layered book. Were there moments where you just threw up your arms and said, this cannot be done, <laughs> this cannot be rendered? Well, I, I think one's hands are always sort of half raised <laughs> in, in translating anything because the reality is it is never going to be a, a proper fit, right? There's always going to be um, these empty spaces, um, places where the words are, you know, they're, they're talking to each other, but they're not mirroring each other. And it's not a, an, not an, an, uh, not the point is not to mirror. Uh, languages can't mirror one another. It doesn't work that way. But the, the, the hope is that, right? And I think the reader wants something quote unquote faithful. And I think that that faithfulness um, you know, our idea of what is faithful is derived from that idea of something having equal weight on either side of the balance, you know, that the thing that the te two texts are somehow, you know, there's nothing that I've left out, there's nothing I extra I've put in, that everything is, 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 is um, going at pace, you know, uh, one step Italian, one step English. Of course, it's, that's not the reality. And if you, if you begin translating anything from any language, you realize the the incredible lack of equilibrium between languages. Um, so it's an illusion, it's a trick to get it to seem uh, balanced and, and, and fair and poised and, and, and faithful, which is again, um, you know, uh, a deceptive word. And I think perhaps a, a, a deceptive, you know, it, it, it tricks the reader also of works in translation. Um, and this is, this is something very um, complicated to talk about. Uh, yeah. we, we will do our best, I think. <laughs> this, of course, is the second uh, book of Domenico Scartanones that you have translated after last year's ties. Um, di did you come to Scartanones' work in search of something to translate or as a reader? How did you approach this work for the first time or Domenico's writing for the first time? I discovered uh, Domenico's work as a reader, but I will preface that by saying I had discovered Domenico first as a person and as a friend, and uh, I knew he was a writer. Uh, I learned that he was a writer um, after meeting him. Uh, I quickly learned he was a writer, and so I was curious to, to know him as a, as a writer as well as a person, and I started reading his work, um, I read Via Gemito uh, first, um, and then some years later I read uh, Lachi Ties uh, when it first came out in Italian. I was living in Rome at the time, and um, the book really did call to me. I felt that it would be the book that would uh, break the spell of Italian and only Italian that had been going on for some years uh, up until that time, um, break it for good or for ill and to complicate my relationship to both languages. Um, and, and so I became a translator with, with that book, uh, which, which I, I translated purely out of, out of my passion for it as a reader. 
And how, how does reading as a translator differ from reading as a, a reader? Hmm. Well, um, I mean, I'm always reading as a writer, so I don't read as a reader. It's just getting more and more complicated <laughs> here. I warned you. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't read as a reader anymore. I haven't for a long time. Um, and, and life passes so quickly that I, I don't read anything as a reader anymore. I can't be bothered, really. Um, if I'm not getting something out of it as a, read as a writer, I don't read it. Um, so, but I think what I try to do in, trans in translating now is that I read it as a writer uh, first, and then I try, and then I read it as a translator, and my process of translation has become literally to read the text out loud and then to translate it. So translation is now an act of reading out loud and then writing in the other language, rewriting what I read in the other language, which is um, interesting because when I was first learning to read as a child, I read most things out loud or they were read out loud to me. And the way I began writing was to copy in, in my own words, a version of what was being read to me or what I was reading. So it's kind of a, an interesting return mm -hmm. to a certain um, instinctive form of writing. But it's much more complicated. It's much more complicated. Yes. And you're just opening up, you use these loaded words like return, and I, I think the physicality of that you just described as part of your translation process is fascinating as well. Yeah, the, the the infusion, the infusing um, the, the the literary act and the, the reading act with a physicality to it is um, a whole other subject that we'll get to next year at next year's festival. Have us back, <laughs> Domenico Starnone. Um, in the passage that uh, you just read, there emerges another question about translation. I think concerning translation, and it is in in this case the the translation of, of feelings, of, of emotions, um, into, on one hand, into proper Italian, quote, unquote, proper Italian, and on the other hand, into dialect. Um, Malarico, in uh, Jumper's translation, says, uh, teachers and professors gave us a vocabulary that was useless on those streets. But the implication seems to me to be that that, that, that vocabulary is useless also to express one's strongest and, and the most primal feeling. Um, to what extent does Malarico in this story feel he has lost touch with those feelings the further he gets away from dialect? Um, and a second question, if I can, sort of what that tension between dialect and proper Italian, what does it mean for a, a writer like you? What does it mean for you as a writer? Io eh, vorrei innanzitutto salutare il pubblico, sono molto felice di stare qui stasera con eh, voi. 
e poi voglio ringraziare Giumpa per eh, lo straordinario lavoro che ha fatto sui miei due libri che ha tradotto ogni volta che lei parla, che ne parliamo in pubblico io eh, sono pieno di ammirazione per l'impegno e per l'intelligenza che mette in, in, in questo lavoro eh, la pagina che abbiamo letto è dice molte cose eh, tutte contemporaneamente e una eh, fondamentale proprio sulla difficoltà del tradurre. Perché? Well, first of all, I wanted to um, thank the audience for being here and saying hello to you all. I'm very happy to be here with you today. I uh, also wanted to thank Jhumpalayeri for the extraordinary work she's done on translating my two books. Each time we uh, talk about the books in public, I'm always uh, really impressed and I feel deep admiration for the intelligent way in which she talks about uh, this work. Uh, the passage that we um, read says um, a lot of things at the same time, uh, in particular about this translation part. <coughs> Nella pagina che abbiamo letto, ma la pagina è significativa perché è un tema che attraversa tutto il, il racconto, eh, ci sono molti strati che agiscono contemporaneamente. Il personaggio è un uomo anziano, è un ultra settantenne, è originario di Napoli, viene da un ambiente scarsamente colto, eh, da... Eh, da bambino, da ragazzino, eh, la sua lingua primaria è il dialetto, è il napoletano. Tutti i suoi sentimenti primari, tutte le sue esperienze eh, eh, di fondo, quelle che formano un individuo, hanno avuto una loro prima forma, una loro prima formalizzazione in dialetto. Quest'uomo poi è un artista, è un illustratore, ha fatto una sua complessa carriera e ora alla fine della sua esistenza ed è in crisi. La crisi rompe una serie di eh, rimi, ro rompe la forma, la forma della eh, sua vita. Um, so the, pa the page we um, read is very significant because it tackles an issue which permeates the entire story, which has many layers. And the protagonist is an elderly man, um, over 70. He is from Naples and he comes from an environment uh, which is not very uh, well educated. As a child, his primary language was dialect, Neapolitan dialect, and all of his primary feelings, the basis, the, the, the foundations for all of the, his way of seeing the world uh, were shaped in that dialect. Then he became an artist, an illustrator, and uh, he had a um, fulfilling career, but now he is um, reaching the end of his life and he uh, is going through a deep crisis. Uh, this deep crisis breaks this shape that uh, his life had taken. La rottura di questa forma, del suo modo comune, diciamo, colto di esprimersi, lo riporta indietro, lo riporta indietro. La crisi naturalmente è attivata in maniera particolare dal fatto che eh, 
le due tavole che ha consegnato al giovane editore che gli ha dato un lavoro sono state duramente criticate e lui si sente offeso ed è arrabbiato. Ed è arrabbiato. E la rabbia, non l'ira, emerge dal fondo di quest'uomo come dialetto e non come, eh, come lingua standard italiana. Perché? Perché è nel dialetto che lui sente, per via della formazione che ha avuto, la massima espressione di quel sentimento. La parola araj in dialetto al suo orecchio suona veramente rabbiosa, mentre l'ira gli appare roba da eh, scuola, da persone ben educate, che non possono esprimere invece il sentimento che lui si sente dentro. Il libro è costruito sulla crisi di quest'uomo anziano, nonno, che significa tempo trascorso, passato, accumulato, e l'urto invece con questo nipotino di quattro anni, che è invece l'espressione di un mondo più agiato, eh, più colto del, di, di quello che lui ha attraversato da ragazzo. Il brano, come avete visto, si chiude col nonno che dice al bambino «Ma tu sai cos'è Araj?» E il, non, e il bambino risponde, nonno, non si parla così, per, per, dire, per dire che tra i due ormai c'è una, una rottura netta e il loro rapporto si costruirà nel corso del libro su questa rottura e su come ricomporla. This break, um, the break of, of this shape uh, that he had created in uh, his well-educated uh, world uh, of, of uh, his life in Milan, um, takes him back. And what takes him back and activates his crisis is the fact that he had turned in uh, to his young publisher to plates that had been rejected. And that offends him and enrages him. And it is rage, not ire. And that emerges from the bottom in dialect, not in standard Italian, because it is specifically in that dialect that it, ha it had formed itself, that it had found its maximum expression as a feeling. So it's rage, rage that is uh, true rage, not ire. Uh, ire is something that belongs to school books and to polite, well-educated people, not an expression of his deep, true feeling. So the book is actually constructed uh, starting from this crisis that this elderly person goes through. It is uh, the relationship between a grandfather, so grandfather representing the past, the time that has gone by, and a, a grandchild, who's an expression of a world which is much more cultivated, well-educated, and sophisticated compared to the world that the grandfather had grown up in when he was a child. So in the passage we read, at one point the grandfather asks the grandchild, do you know what Araja is? And the grandchild responds, but grandpa, we don't speak that way. And this marks a very clear net break in their relationship. And the entire book is then a, a study of this break and how to fix it. 
il, il gioco sul dialetto e la lingua tra nonno e nipote, un nipote che parla in maniera coltissima, è un nonno che eh, sta rompendo la propria forma e sente riemergere tutti i fantasmi della infanzia e dell'adolescenza e, e questo gioco è un, diciamo, ha radici nel mio rapporto col dialetto eh, io sono stato a, a lungo eh, fin verso i 9-10 anni assolutamente dialettofono cioè parlavo solo, italiano, cioè parlavo solo napoletano l'ingresso nell'italiano è lento e, e, ed è anche molto complesso, eh, il, eh, eh, avere un fondo dialettale in un paese come l'Italia però è, è da un lato uno svantaggio, dall'altro una ricchezza, specialmente se si scrive. Il fondo dialettale è eh, una, diciamo così, un luogo verbale dove si sono depositate le esperienze più intense, il nostro primo modo di dare forma all'esperienza, al mondo in cui si viveva. Raccontarlo quindi è una continua oscillazione tra l'italiano standard e questo fondo dialettale. La pagina che abbiamo letto è fondata su questo gioco, Insa Ira Scolastica l'ira di Achille, rage, la rabbia, invece è il sentimento vero, è il luogo dove la rabbia esplode con, il luogo verbale dove la rabbia esplode con maggiore violenza. Quando si traduce, il discorso di Giunfa è molto interessante, tradurre è sempre una magnifica attività e bisogna essere sempre gradi ai, ai traduttori ci permettono di attraversare i confini, di andare nei luoghi più disparati dove non arriveremmo con, con la nostra lingua, ci permette di allargare il mondo, di imparare. Eh, naturalmente però ci sono molti modi di tradurre. Eh, quando Giunfa dice io leggo e ormai leggo solo da scrittrice, eh, sta dicendo una cosa importante, ci sono molti modi di leggere, per uno scrittore leggere non è soltanto dire che cosa accade, che cosa sta succedendo, è bello, è brutto, ma per uno scrittore leggere un libro che lo prende, che gli interessa, è anche quasi sempre la domanda come ha fatto, come ha fatto, come ha ottenuto questo effetto. Un traduttore che muove da questa domanda, naturalmente si complica molto la vita ed è... è farà un lavoro, eh, non voglio dire migliore o peggiore, ma sicuramente un lavoro che parte da una consapevolezza eh, che non è quella del lettore comune. So this interplay between dialect and standard Italian um, is fundamental and of course the grandchild speaks in this extremely uh, sophisticated, uh, cultivated way, whereas the, the grandfather is going through the process of breaking this mold and this shape uh, that the language had created for him, and he feels the reemergence of a ghost, the ghost of his uh, childhood and uh, teenage years, uh, where his roots are. And this is actually 
been rooted in my own relationship with uh, the Neapolitan dialect. I myself uh, only spoke Neapolitan dialect up until I was nine or ten years old. And my entrance into um, the world of standard Italian was slow and complex. And I think that having this uh, um, foundation in dialect in a country such as Italy um, can be on the one side a disadvantage, but also on the other side, it is a, a richness, especially when someone then becomes a writer. Um, the dialect is this uh, um, verbal place in which emotion is expressed with greater intensity. It is a one's primary uh, first uh, earliest way to shape um, experience. And so telling uh, a story with this continuous um, oscillation going back and forth between standard Italian and dialect is a way to really um, show that or depict that. So when you talk about ire, well, that's uh, school book material. It's what happened to Achilles. But whereas rage, rage is true. Rage it explodes with uh, strong violence within the character. What Jumpa said um, about um, her approach to translation is extremely interesting. And uh, I, I think the work translators do is wonderful. And uh, one always has to be very grateful to translators because they allow us to cross borders and to um, make the world larger and to learn. And uh, of course, there's many ways to approach translation. And uh, what when Jumpa said that when she reads, she now uh, reads as a writer, well, that's very significant. Th there are many ways to approach a text, to approach reading. And uh, on the one hand, one can just talk about what happens in the text, whether it's good or bad. But when one approaches reading as a writer, as Jumpa does, what one does is ask oneself, how did he do it or she? Uh, how did he or she create this effect? So when uh, one uh, approaches translation with this starting point, well, um, one makes her life more complicated, of course. And uh, I think she did a uh, wonderful work, uh, also based on the awareness that uh, she read it not the way a common reader would, but starting from this point of view. I think we have to be grateful to translators also for this conversation that we're having <laughs> this evening. Let's not, let's not forget that. Um, and there, there, there is there is one uh, one other aspect of translation that I, I, I did want to talk about before uh, we move on, and, and it is sort of the translation or the the um, integration, I suppose, of uh, the Jolly Corner, the Henry James story, into this book, into Trick. Uh, the Jolly Corner, um, terrific Henry James story is used not only as a plot device in Trick, um, we've, been, we've been talking about uh, Malorico as a, an illustrator and the illustrations that he sent to his publisher and the publisher has said they're no good. Uh, he is illustrating a, a deluxe edition of the Henry James story, The Jolly Corner. But The Jolly Corner enters into this story in, in, in many different ways. That is just one simple uh, plot device. And uh, Starnona, you, you have spoken about um, your, your love for this story, uh, your admiration for this story. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about what drew you initially to the, to the Jolly Corner and why you have returned to it in such an explicit way 
at this time with this book. Il testo di James è un testo eh, ricco, molto complesso, non si esaurisce in una sola veloce lettura, è un racconto tardo eh, ed è un racconto in cui James eh, sintetizza buona parte delle sue opere con grande efficacia. Eh, al centro c'è un, un signore raffinato, colto, sotto i 60, di origine americana, che è vissuto in Europa e che arriva a New York nel pieno della sua esplosione edilizia. Stanno crescendo grattacieli eh, in, ad ogni angolo. Il eh, signore Spencer torna, torna a New York, possiede due case, decide di eh, venderne una e proprio nel corso della compravendita scopre dentro di, dentro di sé una potenzialità di uomo d'affari che stride con la sua vita ora di americano europeizzato, colto, raffinato e così via. La scoperta di questa tensione e di anche di questo piacere del far danaro, del, del trarre profitto, eh, un po' lo allarma, un po' lo diverte, eh, lui percepisce che in una delle due case, la casa a cui è più legata, la casa dell'infanzia, c'è un fantasma. E c'è un fan il fantasma viene presentato fin dall'inizio in maniera esplicita come un altro Spencer, lo Spencer che eh, sarebbe stato se fosse rimasto a New York cioè un uomo d'affari feroce, aggressivo, violento, il cui centro di interesse è il danaro, è l'accumulare danaro. L'incontro con questo altro se stesso all'inizio è una specie di eh, allegra caccia al tesoro. Spencer si muove per il suo appartamento di notte cercando questo fantasma. Lentamente però l'altro non gli sembra così accattivante. All'inizio non ne ha paura perché è se stesso e non si può avere paura di se stessi. Da un certo punto in, in poi invece il fantasma gli appare reale, presente e quel se stesso lo spaventa, lo spaventa al punto che a un certo punto sta per, per, per aprire una finestra e saltare giù dal, dal, dal eh, di sotto. Insomma. Questa storia è una storia che mi porto dietro da eh, molti anni, se non l'avete letta vi consiglio di leggere perché è un piccolo capolavoro, eh, il, eh, direi da qualche decennio. Perché? Perché all'interno di questa storia eh, c'è una cosa che forse ci tormenta tutti nell'arco della vita. Eh, le scelte che abbiamo fatto hanno messo da parte quello che potevamo essere. Ogni scelta ha tagliato via da noi qualcosa. Non è, non è importante se il qualcosa era buono e l'abbiamo perso, o era cattivo e quindi ci abbiamo guadagnato. Non è questo il punto. Il punto, e questo è, è, è molto ben centrato nel racconto, il punto è che man mano che la vita avanza, il peggio e il meglio di noi 
si, si perde, si perde proprio perché nell'avanzare noi acquisiamo una forma e quella forma taglia via molte possibilità. N nel racconto di Jane. <ride> So the text by Harry James, um, James is extremely complex and it cannot be fully grasped by a quick reading um, only once. Uh, it is something that he wrote um, later on in life and um, it is uh, a perfect combination of all the elements that characterize all of the work he did throughout his life. Uh, it is really exceptional in, at this level. Um, the protagonist is a man in his 60s uh, who um, is American uh, by birth and he led a very sophisticated, refined, highly um, cultivated life in Europe. At one point he comes back to New York, as I said, in the early when he's 60, and uh, he, um, New York is at a stage in which uh, it was exploding in terms of buildings and skyscrapers are popping up left, right, and center. And um, Mr. Spencer, that's his name, uh, owns two um, houses in New York. And he decides that he needs to sell one of them. And as he goes through this process, he realizes that he can be a really good businessman. And uh, this um, conflict between the life of an American uh, businessman and the cultivated life he had led in Europe is, is very, very uh, striking. As he goes through the process, he disappears that, he discovers, sorry, that he uh, finds great pleasure in this kind of attitude in which um, he is aggressive and profit-driven and uh, he really enjoys that. So um, as he, that, that is very um, unsettling for him. And as he goes through the process of selling one of the two houses, the one that he feels closest to because that's where he'd grown up, the childhood home, he um, perceives that there's a ghost in there. Uh, so another Spencer. And uh, he realized that this ghost is who he would have been if instead of going to Europe, he had stayed back in America and he would have become this um, aggressive, ferocious, violent, uh, money-driven businessman. So he meets another version of himself. And uh, in the beginning, uh, the pursuit of this ghost is jolly and, and uh, positive for him. He's looking for this ghost, but he is not scared because that's just a part of himself. So one is never scared of himself. So uh, as the story progresses, he starts being more and more uh, fearful. Uh, and he is afraid of what this part of himself has become. And so much so that at one point, he's ready to jump off a window. Uh, this story is a really beautiful story, which uh, a masterpiece. And I highly recommend to those of you who have not read it to do so. And I've been with it for years and years, decades. And um, mm, why is that? Well, because this story um, is about something that torments all of us. And it's about the fact that um, the choices one makes um, throughout life lead to setting aside what we could have been. 
So it doesn't matter if what you lose is a good part of yourself or a bad part of yourself. So if it was uh, bad and you lose it, it's, it's you gain. If it's good and you lose it, you lose. But still, that's not the point. That's beside the point. What, what matters is that as life progresses, uh, the best or the worst part of us is lost. And a s good chunk of us, as years progress, well, is never to be retrieved. Del racconto, del racconto io prendo eh, eh, questo tema del, del chiudersi man mano che si vive di tutta una serie di possibilità lungo, lungo cui avremmo potuto andare verso forme di vita diverse da quelle che abbiamo, che abbiamo eh, ottenuto. Ma eh, l'altra cosa è, ma è un mio divertimento, è spostare New York a Napoli, cioè eh, fare, di, fare di, del personaggio di, di James il personaggio di Mallarico che torna nella sua città natale e lì scopre, lì scopre che la sua carriera artistica probabilmente è un piccolo fallimento, che il successo che ha avuto è un successo che che eh, è insufficiente a giustificare le sue scelte e che eh, si è aperta una crepa. Eh, eh, la forma di vita che lui si è data, è interessante che James usa spesso questa espressione, la forma che ci diamo, la forma che noi diamo alla vita, ecco nel caso dell'illustratore la forma che lui ha dato alla sua vita è probabilmente una forma di impoverimento, di impoverimento. Il punto di crisi è suo nipote, mentre in James eh, il fantasma è un coetaneo di Spencer, eh, nel mio racconto il fantasma, tra virgolette, è proprio il piccolo eh, di quattro anni, che è un fantasma eh, non tradizionale, cioè in parole povere, è lo stesso eh, nonno che però adesso, a quattro anni, rappresenta il futuro e dà un ventaglio di possibilità, un'ampiezza di possibilità che invece il nonno ha definitivamente perso. Il racconto è appunto lo scontro-incontro tra quello che si è perso è quello che invece per un'altra vita si spalanca davanti. So in the tale, I, uh, in my story, I take this uh, theme of uh, um, closing off of uh, a series of possibilities uh, to um, create new uh, shapes of life that uh, are different compared to what they could have been. Uh, another thing that I did uh, in, in my story is actually moving New York to Naples. So, um, you know, James um, had this protagonist and I created Malarico and um, my, my Malarico goes al also goes back to his um, city of uh, uh, birth and uh, he, at that point, goes through a deep crisis where he discovers that his um, artistic career was a small failure and that the success he has obtained is not sufficient to justify his choices. 
and a deep crack has um, formed. And uh, the shape of life, that's an expression that James uses quite a bit. Uh, well, the, the illustrator has uh, made his life poorer because of his choices, uh, the shape he gave to his life. And uh, this um, turning point for his crisis uh, is triggered by his grandson. In James's story, the ghost was the same age as uh, the protagonist, whereas in my story, the ghost, so to speak, is the little four-year-old um, grandson, uh, who is not a traditional ghost, therefore, but it is, in a way, a ghost of what the grandfather himself could have been, and a he represents the future. He represents uh, the fan of possibilities that were open in front of him uh, and which are open in front of the little one, whereas the grandfather has lost access to all of them. So it is the uh, clash or meeting between um, somebody who has already closed all of those options uh, as opposed to somebody who has all of them wide open in front of him. Jumpa, um, Domenico is being a bit tricky here with his conversation of uh, James because I, I, well I know that you, you read and reread uh, the James story both before and during uh, your work translating the story um, and continued to discover and find new connections between that story and um, and Crick, not just thematic connections, but also sort of textual um, interplay. Let's say I was wondering if you could talk a little about a little bit about um, what you discovered and how you dealt with that during the translation. Well, uh, I, Domenico had warned me before I started that. Uh, that this was, um, there, there were going to be sections of this book that were going to be particularly um, challenging, and uh, one of which would be, uh, he said, the appendix of the book, um, which is a forms a part of the novel, um, but it's set apart. It's a sort of uh, organ, uh, if you will, cut out of the body of the text. That was uh, that 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 is in in some sense uh, is a prequel uh, prequel yes of the of, of of what unfolds in real time in the course of the main frame of the novel, um, and it is a very um, very complex uh, text in that uh, not only. Uh, it's written as a diary, first of all. Uh, it has a totally different um, energy. The prose is, is of a com utterly different character from what uh, the, the novel has a kind of um, a certain um, certain way of, of, of a, certain a certain essence, if you will, um, certain way of articulating things, thoughts, actions, or descriptions. The appendix is 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 very distinct in that sense, and it's um, there are two things going on. Um, one is, as as uh, Michael has uh, pointed out, um, there is a kind of very uh, uh, more 
textually explicit conversation happening with the Henry James story in that there are uh, sentences, phrases, words, key, key imagery uh, more than anything. Um, part of what Dominique was talking about, um, the form, uh, the, uh, the Jolly Corner is a lot about sounds. Not only is it a visual, it's about visual images, it's about, it's a ghost story, therefore it's about images, it's about what's there and not there. It's about um, what, it, what we really see and what we think we're seeing. Um, and it's also about hearing, right? It's about as much about hearing and not hearing as it is about seeing and not seeing. And that is, of course, what makes the reader uh, scared uh, and what made James such a, such a powerful uh, teller of, 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 of ghost stories and such a sophisticated writer of ghost stories because his ghost stories have this... Um, this incredibly intricate structure in, in that the reader, it is the reader who in the end is questioning, right? Am I seeing that or not? Am I, or am I hearing that or not? And of course the character is also um, prone to this constant vacillation, uh, a, a state of doubt, a state of suspension, which is what makes a ghost story effective in the end. So, so there the, the, the appendix is, um, there are spliced in into into the the into Domenico's text, um, he has artfully, ingeniously spliced in passages, not long passages, but really words, phrases uh, from James. But not only because it's the character who is meditating on the words themselves and commenting on them. So it's not just that the words are there as a kind of I can put this here, you know. Just to just to do it, it's it's a part of the character's emotional um, uh, state, right? It contemplating these words and their meaning, because he is of course illustrating the James story, and so he, as I was doing, obsessively reading and rereading James. He too is obsessively reading and rereading James in order to, perhaps, as I was doing. Receive what the what the James story is transmitting needs to transmit in order for that story to be rendered into image, or in my case, what it takes for Domenico's text to be rendered into English, mm -hmm. right? But I was reading and rereading both Domenico's text and James independently, and James as packaged and uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, the select elements of James that, that, that Domenico has inserted into his text. The other thing about the appendix that's so interesting uh, to me is that, t uh, it, it, at least from my point of view, it is um, very resonant of Kafka's diaries uh, and the structure and the tonality and also the what the diaries are talking about. Um, there is a lot of agitation, a lot of um, sort of physical lack of ease, um, a state of doubt, a state of um, sort of discomfort, both, ex both existential and physical. Um, and the other thing, um, the other parallel I found was that as in Kafka's diaries where you'll have sort of quotidian descriptions, you know, um, and then, without warning, it will swerve into some kind of imaginative, um, 
you know, basis for a future short story, or you'll have sort of short stories of Kafka sort of embedded in shorthand inside of the, the his diaries, right? So in that sense, textually, they're so interesting mm -hmm. to read because they, they're, they're sort of, uh, you know, they're both, um, it's both diary writing and not because his fictional wor world is, is the it's very porous um, as a text. And, and so the diary, the appendix of, 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 of Scherzetto, of Trick, has a similar quality, mm -hmm. right? So I was actually thinking of, um, in that section, I was thinking of James, of course, but also a little bit I was refreshing my, my, my um, sort of familiarity with, with Kafka and his tonality uh, to make it hold together. Is there, um, uh, we've mentioned um, a couple of times the previous book, Ties. Um, there, there are certain formal similarities between the, the, the two books, and, and of course I think uh, Domenico Stadnone's erudition shines through in, in both of them. Um, how did they differ for you as a, as a translator? Well, um, I mean, I think... I think they're similar, uh, to not answer your question, <laughs> but I will. Uh, I think they're similar in that, it, in that largely both books are about an act of return and the dangers implicit in returning. We know that there is no return. There are no returns in life. Um, and if we try to return, we will be in for a surprise, um, often a painful one. So both novels have this as a kind of working premise, I think. Um, this book, uh, Trick, um, I, I, I think is, um, it was, uh, it just is, is, is different. It has a different uh, set of concerns. Um, it's, it's not uh, only about the family and about identity. Um, it's about, um, it's all, well, I mean, both, both books are amazing, right? Um, both books spoke to me so deeply, um, so profoundly, and that is why I have translated both of them, because they are full of great truth and beauty. Mm. And, and I say that just like this, but I, I mean, I, I mean, um, seriously what what I say and that it, they, they both the books contain what I'm seeking as a reader mm. which is that truth and that beauty um, together in language and and but 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 I think trick is different in that uh, of course it, first of all it has this intertextual element um, which I just find so exciting and inspiring and new um, and uh, I mean, I, I think both books talk, address what it means to, to write, to tell a story, to create art, um, and, and, uh, and both are deep investigations of identity, but I think this novel, Trick, is, is even more so uh, a meditation on identity and all of these um, points of, 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 um, of division, the, 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 the the um, how do you say the uh, the the schism the the, um, the the division within ourselves um, between 
you know, linguistically between, you know, the dialect and the, the language you learn speaking as a, as a child and the language you learn in the world. I mean, these things um, spoke to me personally so deeply, first of all. Um, and, and just how that metaphor of, of being not one thing, never one thing, but always more than one, um, and, and how that metaphor is, is carried through and echoes and is built upon, um, that is what I think is the great power of this novel. And so it's, it's you know, we started with the discussion between Aradja and, 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 and Ira, you know, rage and ire, this, this tension between words, this tension between worlds, this tension between two, no two books, you know, between Domenico's book and the, the James text, um, and ultimately the tension we carry within ourselves within in terms of who we are and why we've become what we are and what we might have been, um, which James looks at so intelligently and then Sarnone is again revisiting. And in that sense, there is a point to returning. I think as a, as a writer, Domenico's returning to James's text is a triumphant return. It's a beautiful return. It's a return that, that makes us return to James and, and then move forward and go backward. So, so in that sense, it, I think it can happen in, 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 in terms of literature. It's very inspiring to me. Thank you. <laughs> I, think, um, I think we're going to open up very shortly to a few questions, right? But I, I can't see anything. I'm not sure. Okay, there's going to be a mic right there. If you have a question, um, you might want to go to the mic right now. Um, and uh, in a second or two, we'll, we'll, we'll get to your questions. Um, one last question for Domenico Starnone. Um, is Trick a ghost story? Scherzetto è una storia ed è una storia di, eh, innanzitutto di nonno e nipote, cioè di un, un maschio ultra settantenne che sta chiudendo la sua vita e di un ragazzino di quattro anni che appartiene a un, cedio, un ceto medio colto e che pare avere davanti una vita straordinaria. E, e quindi il racconto di questo incontro, di due persone che non si conoscono per niente, il nonno ha visto suo nipote un paio di volte, è un uomo stanco, anaffettivo, ha avuto una vita eh, proprio sul piano degli affetti arida, nel senso che ha dedicato buona parte del suo tempo all'arte, alla sua smania creativa. Dall'altro lato c'è questo bambino eh, super educato, super istruito e però estremamente fragile perché presto scoprirà che queste sue competenze trasmesse dal padre hanno dei forti limiti e lui non è in grado, come bambino di quattro anni, di gestire i rischi, i pericoli eh, di un quotidiani, così come si mostreranno nei tre giorni che passerà col nonno. Non vi voglio anticipare niente, ma... Eh, ma eh, eh, in Italia, negli incontri che ho fatto su questo libro, soprattutto le nonne erano, erano molto eh, sollevate perché avevano scoperto che si poteva anche essere nonni senza amare eh, follemente i propri nipoti e senza diventarne schiavi. In più, in più una mia eh, 
detto che eh, a partire dalla lettura del libro non sarebbe mai più andata su un balcone senza cellulare, ma questo non vi anticipa nulla, vi dice solo che c'è un balcone che ha un suo interesse nel libro. Fantasmi, eh, sì è una storia di fantasmi ma eh, come quella di James molto realistica. Eh, il, il fantasma qui non è un'entità eh, terribile, mostruosa che si aggira per stanze buie ma è nella sostanza eh, quello che resta di noi negli altri quello che abbiamo eh, messo di lato e invece riappare e ci dice guarda potresti essere stato così e ci hai rinunciato è, è la moglie che ricorda di non essere stata sufficientemente amata ed è un bambino, è un bambino, questo bambino di quattro anni, che ha molti nostri aspetti che noi o abbiamo trascurato o abbiamo dimenticato o non abbiamo potenziato. Ciò che eh, deprime questo nonno e che però genera anche un, diciamo così, un empito di affetto è il, è il fatto che il bambino, il bambino potrà fare molto ma molto meglio di lui ed esattamente nel campo in cui lui ha impiegato buona parte della sua vita, cioè l'arte. Well, um It is a story. It's a story of a grandfather and a grandson. The grandfather is a male over 70 who is at the end of his life. And the grandson is a four-year-old child from a well-educated upper middle class who has a wonderful life ahead of him. So it's a story of the two of them meeting each other. Um, the grandfather didn't know the grandchild. He'd seen him only twice quickly before. And um, he was a man who was not capable of affection, who had uh, led a very dry, arid um, life as far as uh, um, affection is concerned, because he had devoted most of his energies to his uh, profession, to his uh, artistic career. On the other hand, um, the child is very polite, very well educated, and uh, at the same time, though, he's very emotionally fragile. And uh, he will soon understand that all the competences that he has been um, given through his father's work have uh, limitations and they don't allow him to handle the risks of daily life that he will face over the four days that he spends with his grandfather. Um, in Italy, when I uh, presented the book and spoke to other grandparents, a lot of um, grandmothers told me that they felt very relieved because they um, understood that or discovered through the book that one can actually be a uh, grandparent without uh, having this crazy love for the grandchildren mm. and <laughs> um, without becoming uh, slaves to them. Um, 
and I just want to say, and I, I'm not giving anything away, that uh, after reading the book, um, a couple of grandmothers told me that they're never going to go out to a balcony without a cell phone. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't want to tell you why, but that's what the, that's that. And um, so, yeah, it is, in a way, a ghost story. Um, but it is very um, a very realistic one. The ghosts uh, are not these scary, terrible monsters who uh, walk around dark rooms, uh, but they are what uh, remains of us uh, in others uh, in terms of what we had set aside, which comes through again. So, for example, a wife who uh, recalls how she was not loved enough, or um, a child who has um, a lot of um, aspects that the grandfather had, but uh, had the, f the grandfather um, neglected them or definitely did not um, cultivate them enough and forgot them. So what depresses the grandfather, uh, but also he looks at that with affection as well, is that this grandson will be able to do a lot better than he ever did, specifically in his chosen field in terms of becoming a, an illustrator, an artist. I don't, are, are there any questions over there? Yes, there are. Okay. the speaker just said is that uh, uh, he can say in Italian anything he wants to say, but he doesn't do it the way an Italian would. L'Italia è la somma di più stati diventata tardi in rapporto agli altri stati europei uno stato nazionale. 
eh, i vari stati avevano una tradizione linguistica eh, spesso eh, diversa dall'altro stato, se non addirittura molto distante. L'unificazione linguistica italiana è avvenuta soprattutto grazie alla televisione. La televisione ha fatto più della scuola da questo punto di vista, anche se lo sforzo della scuola è stato enorme nel, eh, tra la fine dell'Ottocento e l'inizio del Novecento. Ma diciamo la nostra lingua standard, così come viene parlata comunemente, è stata diffusa soprattutto dalla televisione. Dietro, dietro eh, distanti, sono rimasti i vari dialetti. Di volta in volta si è detta che erano morti, poi risorgevano risorgevano naturalmente con modificazioni interne dovute anche lì alla televisione, all'influenza del cinema, a, ai libri e così via. Però questi dialetti restano, sono robusti e sono, e sono il luogo in cui noi facciamo le nostre esperienze fondamentali da piccoli quando abbiamo un fondo dialettale. Sulla debolezza del dialetto nell'esprimere grandi sentimenti, nell'esprimere eh, situazioni complesse, si è molto ragionato. Ma per esempio il napoletano ha una tradizione letteraria molto alta e molto complessa. Si pensa semplicemente a Basile eh, a, e a un'opera monumentale da cui sono venute fuori altre opere importanti come Lucunto dei Licunti, cioè il racconto delle favole eh, diffuse nella regione campana, in, Campia, in Campania, eh, dalle origini. E, il dialetto può dire molto, ma sicuramente c'è bisogno per, per esprimersi di una lingua complessa, organizzata e con una tradizione letteraria ampia. I libri e il nostro modo di stare al mondo nasce, eh, eh, nascono dall'esperienza, nascono dalla nostra capacità di dare ordine a quell'esperienza, di, di costruirla con immaginazione, ma questa capacità si forma sui libri, si forma sulla lingua scritta, si forma cioè su una lingua complessa che ci permette di esprimere pensieri complessi. Il dialetto col tempo è rimasto indietro ed è diventata una lingua familiare, una lingua eh, dei sentimenti, delle emozioni, ma non una lingua come quella italiana, italiana così come si è andata informando, che ha ormai una tradizione letteraria robusta e che naturalmente è l'italiano, è, è la lingua di Italia. Eh, mentre il dialetto napoletano è il dialetto che si parla a Napoli e nella Campania. Well, Italy is uh, the sum of several uh, states and it became a single nation late compared to what happened in other European uh, nations. And uh, the in, in, the in these different states, uh, there were different um, linguistic traditions, which in some situations were radically different, very ap far apart from each other. And um, linguistic unification happened thanks to television and also thanks to uh, school, the school system, which um, carried on a really um, intense work, uh, very well done uh, towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. But uh, what contributed 
mm, to a greater extent to what we now know as standard Italian uh, was television, uh, as I stated. Uh, behind all this, dialects uh, survived and lived on. Um, it was said that they were dead and then they would come back to life again, also thanks to TV and cinema and uh, literature. Um, they remained strong, robust, and um, they were they for um, those Italians, many of them who spoke dialect at home as children. It was the language of their first experiences. Now, dialects do have a weakness in terms of expressing more complex, more sophisticated situation, and they stayed behind. Having said that. In Naples, for example, dialects do have a very rich literary tradition. Uh, let's um, think, for example, about Basile or um, about something which uh, was also picked up in a lot of uh, adaptations in terms of uh, cinema and, and all, which is Lucunto de Licunti, The Tale of Tales, uh, which is the telling of uh, a traditional Campania-based uh, uh, tales. So dialect is able of saying a lot, but um, it, I it one does require a more complex, sophisticated, and uh, a thoroughly organized language, which is standard Italian, which has a uh, much more solid literary tradition, because books um, shape our way of being in the world, and. Um, they, that's how our experiences um, are created, and w that's how we are capable of structuring, of giving order to our experiences. And we do that thanks to the kind of language we learned on books, the written complex language. So dialect remained the language of family life, the language of feelings and emotions, but the language that the country of Italy speaks is standard Italian, whereas Neapolitan is the language spoken at a familiar level in Naples. Thank you. I, I think now I do see that there are other questioners there, so we best move on to the next one. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, well, I, I think in my case, um, I can say I feel at home in Rome, uh, I, and I love it very much. Uh, that is true. 
I love I like that feeling um, that I discovered there knowing full well that it's it's my private feeling and doesn't necessarily correspond to um, to reality uh, and to how I am perceived in that reality so when I uh, return to Rome as I do often um, and return to go to my apartment uh, where I pay the gas bill and things like this. Um, in other words, I feel a resident of that city. Um, but as soon as I get, you know, off the plane um, and into the uh, taxi stand, immediately, you know, I am of course perceived as a foreigner and I am, I am a foreigner. So I have to, um, I have to carry both of these selves the, the self that feels at home and feels that I am returning to a home, um, uh, one of my homes, and, and the, the self that is aware that I'm perceived as someone who's coming from the outside. Um, Italy interests me very much in that uh, um, it, it is different um, from the United States um, and, and perceptions, in that perceptions toward people from other places. Uh, there's just a, a different um, way of, of, of looking and uh, interpreting um, than there is certainly in a city like um, New York. Um, the last time I went to Rome, I had a really interesting experience at JFK. Uh, I was checking in, it was an Alitalia flight, and uh, usually just to set start the journey off, I, you know, I like to just check in and I speak Italian and the, the woman at the, the check-in would not speak to me in Italian. She refused and she said in an incredibly pronounced Italian accent, I don't speak Italian. <laughs> and I said, okay, um, all right. And then I, I switched into English and I did my check-in translation in English and then another colleague of hers spoke to her in Italian and she rapidly answered back to the person in Italian and I, I thought just walk away you just have to walk away but I didn't and I said um, excuse me why did you tell me that you didn't speak Italian that you don't speak Italian when you do and she said I just know it a little bit um, <laughs> I, I just follow it you know I just know a few words here and there and and I got on the plane, uh, feeling a little okay. Here we go again. Um, and then the woman came on as as there was there was some you know she had she's had to follow one of the last passengers and and who was in uh, business class, mind you. And it was I was just behind, so I could see and hear the whole transaction. And again, speaking happily and heartily with a huge smile on her face with Italian to this uh, Italian real Italian passenger. And so then I found a, a member of the crew who seemed fr looked friendly. Um, and I asked him in Italian, mi scusi, una curiosità. Excuse me, I, I have a, a, you know, a little question here. And I said, you know, that woman who looked so and so, such and such, is she Italian? <laughs> and he said, yes, of course she's Italian. Um, this is an example of 
my relationship to to Italy, which is um, it is what it is. You know, I, I love Italy and I run back as often as I can. Um, I've left a piece of myself there, um, and that is true. And and that experience I just narrated is also true. Um, all of this to say, for me, the idea of return home, these are very loaded, charged things, uh, things I've lacked in my life, things I've gone out of my way to construct in my life. Um, but I'm uh, no longer under any illusions. Um, I think there are people who are born in the fault lines between and amongst different things, places, realities, languages. Um, perhaps you feel that way. I, I certainly do and have all my life. And I've, I've used this condition um, to become an artist and to see things differently and, and, uh, and to try to distill that reality for myself. Um, but I think, and I'm curious to hear what Domenico will say, someone who is, um, has a different kind of identity, and certainly different background, experience, set of experiences, and that he's uh, born in Naples, as he says, spoke dialect, uh, has lived m all of his life in, in Italy, writes in Italian now. Um, so in some sense, one could say very different. But in other ways, I think we are tied in that, not only in that, I spoke my own version of a dialect growing up. I have this sort of oral familiar language, Bengali, which is my version of a dialect that I then, you know, radically have to renegotiate in order to enter the public world and sphere and become an educated person. Um, but of course, the other thing that ties me to him and to all writers um, and artists is that he and I um, have forged an artistic identity, um, and each artist must do that um, from wherever he or she is from, and, and that requires a set of pulling back from the center, pulling away from the family, pulling away from the obvious uh, markers and identifiers that are um, reassuring and, and solid, and, and to go out to go to, to go away from that that center and to and to go to the periphery, to a, a self-created periphery. Um, so so in that sense, um, you know, a book like like Trick speaks to me so deeply because it's so much about that. It's so much about the the figure who who pulls back um, from that home, right, and and creates another home in 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 one's work in one's in one's art. Vorrei solo dire, in Italia noi amiamo molto eh, chiunque sia eh, straniero. L'essenziale è che lo straniero faccia lo straniero. Eh, eh, L'italiano eh, che conosce un po' di inglese non si rassegna a parlare in italiano se ha l'occasione di parlare in inglese. Eh, quindi è evidente lì un... E come dire, tu sei visibilmente straniera, fa la straniera. Io faccio il mio lavoro e ti parlerò in inglese. È un atteggiamento brutto. Eh, non, non, 
non piacevole. C'è in Italia un modo di sperimentare una, una condizione comune a quella che tu racconti continuamente, ed è l'origine regionale. L'origine regionale. Se si è napoletani, campani, si porta dietro per tutta la vita l'accento regionale. Quell'accento denuncia la regione da dove vieni. Dimmi quando... Ormai, ormai ho capito che devo ricordarmi di lei, che è straordinaria. Eh, questa, questo accento è un marchio. Eh, nella mia esperienza, per esempio, eh, io ho smesso radicalmente di parlare dialetto eh, quando ho cominciato a insegnare, cioè in parole povere, intorno ai 22 anni. Ma il dialetto mi è rimasto addosso. Finché andavo eh, verso eh, il sud d'Italia, eh, tutti mi guardavano e mi, mi sentivano come uno straniero. Perché? Perché avevo cancellato il dialetto e parlavo in italiano. Se andavo sopra Roma, alla prima occasione c'era uno che ridacchiava e diceva ha detto dieci, cioè ha pronunciato, ha pronunciato con accento napoletano, cioè sopra Roma io venivo automaticamente marchiato dall'origine napoletana, sotto Roma non ero più riconoscibile come meridionale, è una situazione di straniamento di, di, che, che noi eh, in Italia ci portiamo dietro pur essendo della stessa eh, nazione eh, e, quindi, e quindi con gli stessi segni addosso. Naturalmente come scrittori il primo compito è raccontarle queste cose perché il racconto anche della tua, della tua esperienza all'aeroporto diventa automaticamente il modo per dire vedete la situazione che si sperimenta in Italia è questa e quindi proprio perché ve la racconto va corretta allo stesso modo raccontare come un'origine regionale possa risultare un, un, un elemento anche di svantaggio, è meridionale, è meridionale. Eh, qui va raccontato che negli anni 50 i meridionali andavano a lavorare al nord e comparivano eh, eh, cartelli nei bar, l'ingresso è, è vietato ai cani e ai meridionali e siamo a 50-60 anni fa. Eh, io insisto, la scrittura, il racconto, fosse anche orale, salva. È il, modo, è il modo per cambiare la vita nostra e di chi quel racconto lo ascolta. Well, in Italy, we uh, love anyone who's a foreigner as long as they behave like foreigners. <laughs> so, so, you know, an Italian who speaks a little bit of English will never resign herself to speaking Italian. Uh, if she has a foreigner in front of her, the message is you have to act like a foreigner. So I'm doing my job and I'm going to do it in English because you're a foreigner. So it is an ugly attitude. It's definitely not pleasant. 
um, in Italy, actually, we uh, do experience a, a similar condition in terms of regional accents. Um, you know, if you're from Campania, like I am, throughout your whole life, you will always be um, associated to your accent, your companion accent, which will immediately give away where you're from. Uh, and um, of course, in, in uh, my experience, I actually mm, stopped speaking dialect when I became a teacher. So I was about 22. But um, that mark always remained on me. And when I would go south compared to Naples, uh, people would not identify me as being from the south because I spoke standard Italian and I had deleted that dialect part so they couldn't really place me. Whereas when I went to the north, immediately, as soon as I said a simple word such as the number 10, dieci, uh, immediately we say, oh, you're from, you're, you're from Naples or you are a southerner, you're a southerner. So um, below Rome, I was no longer a southerner. Uh, north of Rome, all of a sudden, I was a southerner. Um, but um, in, in Italy, um, we d d this thing keeps being uh, a bit of, of, of a stigma. And I think that as a writer, uh, our first task is to tell these stories. Just like uh, Jumpa uh, shared with us that her airport experience. I think that this is a way to say in Italy, um, the situation is like that. And by my telling this story, I am showing that it needs to be corrected. Um, so, you know, uh, telling about one's origin in some cases can be a disadvantage. For example, in Italy, this, um, uh, this uh, labeling, oh, you are a southerner. Well, let's think that in the 50s, uh, when people from the south would emigrate to the north, there were still uh, places in the north with uh, posters that said um, entrances forbidden to dogs and southerners. And this was only 50 or 60 years ago. So I wish to insist um, with our writing uh, and even with telling the stories verbally, uh, we can save ourselves. We can uh, change this world for ourselves and for those who listen to the stories or read them. <laughs> I, I, I could do this for another couple of hours, but I think they're going to um, get the hook out if I stay here any longer. So I'd like to thank you for coming. I'm sorry we didn't get to your questions. I would like to thank Jumpa Lahiri, Domenico Starnone, Emilia Pino Buin. Thank you very much.